0: This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode one, does God exist? Well, yes, he does. That was pretty easy. Though I guess we can go into this a little bit more. This is obviously the first question to address before addressing any other truth of the faith. In fact, this question of God's existence is the first step in something called natural apologetics. That is, using our reason and not divine revelation To learn certain things about God and about good and evil. In fact, there are three steps in this natural apologetics process. The first is God's existence. The second one is, is the soul immortal? And the third one is, do good and evil objective or real good and evil exist? But this first one, this is natural apologetics because it doesn't rely on sacred scripture or any of God's revelation or the teaching of the church, anything like that. It's just using our reason. This is something that is recommended in Scripture, in fact. St. Peter tells us to always be ready to give an accounting for the hope that is in us. And the church herself teaches that we don't need divine revelation to know with certainty that God exists. We can use our reason and our observance of the natural world. And again, St. Paul says that in Romans, that God's Uh, nature is evident in the things that he created. Another reason this is the first question to address is because it gives real solidity to the rest of our faith. Now we don't believe in God primarily. We don't have religious faith because we reasoned to it. It's a gift of grace. But we reason through God's existence because it gives solidity to everything else. In moments of doubt, it provides a rational foothold, something we can hold on to so that we don't slip even further into doubt. It's something that can stop my mind when it starts uh, spiraling down into darkness and doubt. Knowing these proofs, these arguments for God's existence based on our reason stops us and says, wait a minute, yes, this is based on something that I can know here and now, something I can hold on to and it's not something I merely uh, believe blindly. Now there's confusion about this question. Even addressing this question uh, is something that certain Christians don't think we should do or that it's dangerous to do, to engage our reason in exploring God. Many think that we should just uh, believe and that reason and philosophy have no place in uh, these questions. And thats I don't think that's true. I think it's dangerous to say that. And the church, of course, says that that's wrong. To be a, a fideist, that is to say that only faith is to be used, and to be a rationalist, that is to say only reason is to be used, those are both errors according to the church. God gave us minds. And he gave us minds not only to explore the things of the world, but through those things to know something about him. And first of all, it's his existence. God gave us minds to know and to love him. So can we come to know God, uh, to know his existence, without the aid of supernatural revelation? Yes, we can. And the best example, the best proof of that is someone who did just that and did so without the aid of uh, God's revelation to the people of Israel and uh, long before Christ revealed himself in this world. And that's the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who lived about three centuries before Christ. I'm not going to go through his whole argument, you can find it in book 12 of his metaphysics if you really want to do that, Um, but I'm just going to give his conclusion because that's the point here, that he did arrive at the understanding the existence of one supreme being And he says, quote, It is clear then from what has been said that there is a substance which is eternal and unmovable and separate from sensible things. It has been shown that this substance cannot have any magnitude. It's without parts and indivisible. It has also been shown that it is impassive and unalterable. End quote. So Aristotle here comes to the conclusion of a substance, a being, which is eternal and unmovable, separate from sensible things, separate from this world. That it's simple, doesn't have any parts. It is impassive, that is, it can't suffer, it can't change. Now, this doesn't give us the image of loving God, God the Father, or God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, or anything like that. And of course, those are things we could not reason to. Those are things that needed to be revealed by God himself. But it does show that Aristotle, with the use of his reason, came to the knowledge of one supreme being, and that's no small thing. Subsequent thinkers expanded on Aristotle's thought or gave other demonstrations for God's existence, the most prominent one being St. Thomas Aquinas, who elaborated on and enriched Aristotle's proof, and added a few others as well. We're just going to summarize two of his arguments and leave the rest for you to study yourself. And I'll give some uh, resources, some things to read at the end, some book recommendations, so that uh, you can read that and not be bored by uh, me explaining it here in this uh, podcast. Again, this is supposed to be a relatively brief podcast, hence the name. Now, before we look at what St. Thomas Aquinas said, many people object right away whenever you mention St. Thomas Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God. They say, ah, He's from you know the 1200s. Uh, his arguments are obsolete because science has progressed, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they've been shown to be not true because he was basing all of this on an outdated scientific worldview, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. False, okay? As Dwight Schrute would say, Saint Thomas Aquinas doesn't rely on any particular scientific finding. The only phenomenon that he relies on is observing things in the world. In his first proof one that is very similar to Aristotle's, he just relies on the fact that in the world, some things move and some things change. That's it. That's the only, quote, scientific uh, observation, scientific datum that he needs to go through his argument. And so, of course, that's not outdated. That hasn't been disproven. And people that say that his arguments are obsolete most likely have never even addressed them or read them. Uh, An example of this is uh, the atheist... A biologist Richard Dawkins who devotes uh, like two paragraphs in his really stupid book supposedly debunking St. Thomas Aquinas' argument uh, and he, it's clear he doesn't understand it at all. He has no understanding of what he's talking about. So what is St. Thomas Aquinas' first way? Well he basically says we see that some things move and change. This is obvious. We observe this constantly. And then he says next that things that move or change do so because they are moved or changed by another. Then he says, this process can't go on indefinitely, infinitely. And the reason for that is, let's say you have a line of train cars going along the train track in front of you and they're going from left to right in your view. Uh, You can't just explain the motion of those train cars by saying, well, they just keep on going No, at a certain point, they're all moving together. At a certain point, there has to be one that's providing motion for all the rest. If there weren't, then you wouldn't be seeing any of them move right here and right now. A similar example would be trying to explain the motion of uh, the hands on a watch or on a clock. You say, "Well, what's what's causing those those hands to move?" You say, "Well, gears, gears inside the watch." Well, what's moving it all? Nah, just just gears. That's not a that's not an explanation. You can't just add gears and say, "Well." Um, yeah, there's just a, an infinite amount of gears in there turning the hands on the watch. It doesn't work. At a sp- certain point, you have to say, no, there's actually something giving motion to all those gears, and that, in this case, is like a, a spring or something. So that's the essence of his argument. It's basically saying, when we see things in motion, when we see things changing, there's a series of causes and effects, You know, however long you want to make it, But at a certain point, that has to end at something that is not caused by something else, is not moved by something else. And this is what most people mean by God. And that's his conclusion. It's a very modest conclusion. It's not saying, and this God is loving and he's all-powerful, etc. No, it's just there is something that gives motion and that is the source of motion and change that we see in the world. That's a demonstration. It's not a hypothesis. Uh, That's not a God of the gaps argument, which is what a lot of people uh, accuse theists of, saying, well, there's certain things we can't explain, so we just say, "Uh, God did it. No, that's not what this is. This is actually a necessity. This is a necessary conclusion. We see things change. We would not see things change if there were not at some point uh, along the chain of causes and effects, some cause that doesn't require a cause, some mover that doesn't require a cause. Uh, another mover to move it. So that's the first way. And there's a lot more to it, but that's basically the first way, his first proof. His last one is called the fifth way. And in, a lot of people mistake this one for intelligent design argument. Intelligent design argument is not very uh, very strong um, in my view. The intelligent design argument is basically arguing from complexity and things like, well, look at uh, the elegant structure of the human eye uh, therefore God exists. I mean, that, that's, that's compelling, but it's not a demonstration. It's not proof. For example, you know, evolutionary biologists can make certain arguments for that that may or may not seem plausible, but at least they can make an argument for it. Or even if you say that it was designed by some being, there's nothing about it that necessitates that that being exists here and now. So this fifth way is not the intelligent design argument, and a lot of people mistake it as such. What the fifth way, what his fifth proof really is, is saying things in nature seem to act for uh, goals or purposes. And except for human beings, things in nature are not intelligent, and yet they act with intelligence or for uh, intelligible purposes or goals. But inanimate things or things without intelligence don't act for intelligent ends. He gives the example of an archer shooting an arrow at a target, the arrow hits the target but only because it's guided by a master archer. And this is kind of the analogy he gives for things in nature. Things in nature pick anything you want and it has certain things that it does to fulfill its nature, certain goods that it pursues seemingly with intelligence. And yet we know that these things are not rational, so they must be guided by a higher intelligence. That's the essence of the argument. And again, there's more to that. But it is again, another demonstration, it's not some hypothesis, it's not that God is guiding every little squirrel, God is guiding every little uh, bug to do this or that. No, but God gave them natures to accomplish certain discernible intelligible goals and that's the sign of an intelligence. And even if you don't want to look at the example or you're not convinced by the example of a particular creature pursuing goals, and again the creatures are not doing this uh, self-consciously or self-aware, but they act in accord with their nature. Look at the whole amalgam of things in the universe and how they interact and how there's a balance in things and there's certain goods pursued or goods uh, accomplished by a particular ecosystem, right? Even on the larger macro level you can see there's a goal orientedness in the world and that speaks to the existence of a designer. Even atheists who are evolutionary biologists and talk about nature, they can't escape the language of purpose. For example, they talk about evolution aiming for this or that goal. Talk about natural selection. Talk about the language or code of our DNA. They can't escape it because it's so obvious that there's intelligence behind these things. We'll go into this a little bit more in a subsequent episode in Other Proofs for God's Existence. So a couple takeaways from this episode. First, we can and should try to understand God's existence by using our reason without the aid of divine revelation because it provides us with a solid foundation for everything else we believe. There have been various successful arguments, demonstrations for God's existence throughout history by some of history's greatest thinkers, and we only mention two in this episode, but there are many others. And these aren't theories or hypotheses or God of the gaps arguments, but proofs and demonstrations none of which has been or can be disproven through any advance of science because they're philosophical demonstrations which only rely on the most basic observations in nature. If you want to read more about all of this, and I recommend that you do, the first one you should go to to understand St. Thomas's proofs, this is probably the best explanation I've ever read of his proofs, is by Dr. Edward Faser, F-E-S-E-R. It's A Beginner's Guide to Aquinas. You can also read Aquinas himself, but uh, Dr. Fazer really summarizes and clarifies things. Dr. William Lane Craig is a uh, Protestant philosopher and theologian who is excellent on this front of proofs for God's existence. He'll be more helpful in, a, in the next episode when we tackle some of the more modern proofs for God's existence. But you can go to his website, reasonablefaith.org. It has a lot of valuable essays and videos um, to, to help you. Another author is Trent Horn, H-O-R-N. His book, Answering Atheism, addresses a lot of these questions. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief, podcast that, as the title uh, explains, is about Catholic things, it is daily, and it is brief. Perhaps there will be some longer episodes uh, later on if this is successful, but thank you for listening. And God bless.